how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Job Part 1. Well, now we come to the book of Job, or should I say Yov, because in Hebrew, J is pronounced like a Y and B like a V, but we'll be kind to you because we're English and we'll talk about Job. Parts of the book of Job are very familiar. Indeed, some of our proverbs are based on this book. Above all, the phrase which James uses in his letter in the New Testament, the patience of Job, has become part of the English language wherever it's spoken. And uh, we know what a Job's comforter is. Someone who comes along and says, well, it might be worse. (laughs) And a Job's comforter, again, is part of our English colloquial language. The prophet Ezekiel links Job with Noah and Daniel as the three most righteous men who ever lived. It's an interesting comment. Job, Noah and Daniel. If you uh, have attended many funeral services, you know that Job is nearly always used at a funeral service. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The words are almost overused. It takes a lot of courage and faith to say those words actually and to mean it when you've just lost someone very precious. And then of course Handel's oratorio, the Messiah, has picked up Job again and such uh, words as, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Uh, We're so familiar with bits of Job but not many people have read it right through and got the message of the whole of it. And you've got to be very careful quoting any text from the book of Job because you might be quoting a text that is a lie. Because right at the end of the book, God says that Job's friends were wrong in what they said. And this is what happens, you see, when you just quote a text out of context. You might be quoting one of Job's friends and therefore quoting something that is wrong. So you can't just take a verse of the Bible and quote it as if it's God's truth. It is all God's Word, but some of it is not true. Now that may shake your thinking, but uh, I think you understand what I mean. Because the Bible honestly records things that are wrong, but the Bible is giving you an honest picture of what some of these people said and how they were corrected in what they were saying and put right. And that's why it's so important to know a whole book Now, you may think this is uh, starting at a funny point and being a bit crazy, but I was at a theological discussion at a Bible college not long ago and people were quoting texts at each other to prove a point and somebody was quoting one of Job's comforters freely. They didn't tell us the actual chapter and verse, but I knew where it was coming from and he was quoting words from the Bible that are not right and not true but they proved his point, so he quoted them and it sounded as if he was being thoroughly biblical. This is why I emphasize again, every statement in the Bible is in the context of a book and the message of that book determines the meaning of the statement in the book. And so when you know the book from which you're quoting, then you can quote 
a text accurately in its meaning to support a position. Well now, this book may be one of the oldest books we possess. I don't just mean in the Bible, I mean anywhere. This is probably one of the very oldest writings in human history. As far as we can tell, though it's not easy to date it, it comes from the era of the patriarchs around the time of Abraham. And we say that because culturally the things that are mentioned in the book uh, paint a social picture of the time of Abraham. More than that, he does know the name of the God of Abraham. He does know the name Yahweh and uses it. So the book of Job uses the name, but there is no trace whatever of the Exodus and of the covenant at Sinai and the law of Moses, which was so fundamental to the Old Testament that you can't read a prophet without some reference back to the Exodus and the covenant at Sinai, but this book has no knowledge of them. So here we have a book that culturally fits in the time of the patriarchs, has no knowledge of the Exodus or the covenant at Sinai, but does know the name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's why we put Job back there. And if it goes back there, it is probably one of the oldest books, if not the oldest, that we have in the world. Because this kind of book really was not freely written until much later than that. So it's a unique document from that point of view. Now the big question is, are we dealing with fact or fiction here? And it is a very difficult question again to answer. There are three possibilities. The first is that we're dealing with straight fact. Now the Old Testament certainly treats him as a real person and so does the New Testament. So he certainly was a real person and we do have an address for him. Unfortunately, it would probably come back from the post office, address unknown, but the land of us at least pinpoints him somewhere and as far as we can tell, that land is somewhere in the Mesopotamian basin. It's somewhere around the Tigris or the Euphrates, beyond Damascus. It's, uh, it's a culture in which camels and sheep play a major part and he's a very real human. His reactions, and even more so his wife's reactions, are very credible. You can almost hear the argument between them, her comments on his condition, and the comments of his friends are credible, and the personal feelings are so authentic. Then why should anybody think it's not fact? Well, it has all the marks of fiction too. Uh, there's something artificially created about it that just doesn't seem to ring quite true to life. For example, take some of the events. There are four disasters, one after another, all of which leave one person free to come back and say, I even, I only am left. Now it's just stretching credulity a little to think that there could be four disasters, one after the other, each leaving one person to come back and report, and only one person alive from the disaster. There's a little artificiality there. Do, do you pick up what I'm saying? And the happy ending, um, you know, Job loses all his children, but never mind, he's happy because he's got some more. Didn't he miss the others? I mean, <laughs> there, there is something a little different, a little abnormal about the whole framework of the story.
Then, of course, the speeches. They're all in poetry. And as I told you earlier, poetry is an artificial form of speech. You don't naturally address each other in poetry. You have to think about it. Poetry is composed. And, of course, most of Job is poetry. All his comforters speak these superb poems. And the idea that a man's three friends were all brilliant poets, it, it's just a little off. It's all a bit too neat for reality. And the speeches, who took them all down? <laughs> when they were pouring out this page after page of sheer poetry, who took it all down? Well, I'm going to be honest and say I believe here we have in the scripture what we call faction. Faction. There is no doubt that it's based on a real man to whom disasters happened and who had this problem of how to fit it all into God. And the reason I say that is that there are other stories in the Middle East about Job. He is not just known about in the Bible. He was widely known in the Middle East. He must have left a very deep impression of his sufferings and the way he took them because in other cultures you'll find the story of this man Job. And though he knew the God of Israel, he is known outside Israel. And so there must be some reality in it. But I believe somebody else has written the story up and enlarged it. I, I would compare it to Shakespeare's historical plays. In Shakespeare's Henry V, for example, you've got, you've got a basis of historical fact. There was a real Henry V and he did fight the Battle of Agincourt. But uh, Shakespeare, with brilliant poetry, has written it up and brought out the inner meaning of the people and the event through brilliant poetry. Do you see what I mean? Somebody, I believe, has done that with the story of Job. They've taken the true story of this godly man and his incredible patience under suffering and they've built, into, built it into a, an extended poem that brings out the real issues that he was facing in a remarkable way. There's a man just died last week called Bolt, Robert Bolt, and he wrote the screenplay for such plays, uh, films as A Man for All Seasons, The Life of Sir Thomas More, and Lawrence of Arabia. Now, those are faction. And Robert Bolt tried as far as possible to capture the essence of the issues that those men faced and what went on and put them into a screenplay that frankly was brilliant. If you've seen either film, brilliant screenplay, you feel you know the people and know what they went through, but it was written by Robert Bolt. So there are two kinds of faction. There are the kinds of faction that grossly distort the life of a real person and I'm afraid we're getting a lot of that now. John Osborne's play about Martin Luther is a classic case where if you listen to that play, you learn far more about John Osborne than about Martin Luther. And some faction uses a historical person as an excuse to convey other ideas. But there's the faction that actually brings out more truthfully and more forcefully and more understandably uh, what went on in the man's life. I believe that's what we've got here. Well, you can tell me afterwards if you hold another view. But when I look at it, it is brilliant poetry. Uh, and the whole thing is clearly got the stamp of a genius on it. And uh, I'm quite sure these three men, the comforters, didn't speak like this to Job. But the poetry 
which has the mark of the same genius all the way through, brings out the real challenge of the uh, dialogue that went on. Whoever wrote this book was certainly a genius. Thomas Carlyle said, it is a noble book, it is all men's book. And uh, Tennyson said, this is the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. That's quite a tribute from Alfred Lord Tennyson. Luther said it's the most magnificent, sublime book as no other book of Scripture. And it has been compared to Homer, Virgil, Dante, Milton, and even to Shakespeare as one of the great, great works of literature from all the ages. And it certainly is. If you appreciate poetry and literature, this coming from 4,000 years ago is perhaps one of the most remarkable pieces of literature ever. But it's far more than literature. It's Hebrew poetry, of course, which is sense rather than sound, the repetition of sense in couplets, which we've already looked at. But it's really a work of philosophy. Now, philosophy is really thinking about the great questions of life. Why are we here? What is life about? Where did evil come from? And above all, why is it that good people suffer? These are the questions that philosophy tackles. And this book, in the form of its drama poetry, presents an answer to some of those biggest questions. Why is there pain and suffering? Why are these so unfairly experienced? Why do good people endure it? Why do bad people escape it? And if there is a God, is he interested in our suffering and does he care about it? These are the deep questions that Job tackles. And that's why somehow it speaks to every culture and every person. Remarkable book. It's also a book of theology. Philosophy can treat these questions in an abstract manner, but theology has to relate them to God. Now, I want to try and explain something. You have to have a particular view of God before you have a problem with suffering. Let me try and explain what I mean. If you believe God is bad, then there's no problem about suffering. Because a bad God would make you suffer. So where's the problem? It's only if you believe that God is good that you have a problem. You follow me? Furthermore, if you believe that God is weak, and can't do anything to help you, you have no problem with suffering. God would only sympathize with you, but he can't do anything about it. It's only if you believe that God is almighty as well as good that you have a problem. Do you see what I mean? So that you can only have the problem of suffering if you already believe in a God who's powerful and loving. And so modern Theology tries to get round the problem by denying one or the other of those two things. It is now very popular to deny that God is good and to say that he's a bad God and he's playing jokes on us and cancer is simply a sick joke and God is like that. It's amazing how many modern novels have that concept of God in them, that God is all-powerful and bad and of course they have no problem with suffering. But that's outside the church. Inside the church there's a whole new theology that God is weak. And a bishop on the television 
My wife and I were watching Credo once and he said, God is as weak as water. And he repeated it. He is the bishop sitting as the chairman of the commission to revise the doctrine of the Church of England. And he said, the new discovery is that God is weak and that he can't do anything about the problems in the world, that he's looking on us to solve the problems of the world. His interviewer said, do you think that'll bring people into church? He said, of course, when, when people realize how much God needs us, they will come into church. And then he said, the interviewer said, how do you think of God? He said, well, I think of a large extended family in which there is a grandmother who loves everybody in the family and her love keeps the family together while everybody else goes out and does the work. And he said, that's how I imagine God. And the interviewer in astonishment said, but I thought God was a father, not a grandmother. But you see, that's solving the problem because it says God is as helpless to do anything about it as we are. So the suffering we must accept or try and do what we can to relieve, but that's it, no problem. But it's only if you believe God is all-loving, all-compassionate, all-kind and at the same time almighty and able to do anything, then you have a big problem. So that behind a book like Job, there is already a theology that says, I believe there's a God, I believe He's good, I believe He's all-powerful, I believe He cares. And that's why I've got a problem. So that in other words, if you've got a problem with suffering, you're already three quarters of the way to the truth about God. But the little quarter still remains. If he's good and all-powerful, why? Now I hope that's introduced you to the uh, questions that the book deals with. Of course, there is one acute difference between a Jewish understanding of this book and a Christian understanding. I already spoke about it when I talked about the Psalms. There is no clear understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament. It is the resurrection of Jesus that brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. And we are living on the right side of the resurrection of Jesus so that somehow the problem of suffering is greatly reduced when it is compared with what happens beyond. And as Paul would say, I reckon that the, the momentary light affliction now is nothing compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. That gives us Christians a totally different perspective on present suffering. Do you follow me? It's still a problem but it's a much greater problem if you have no clear understanding of life after death and a compensation there for what you've been through here. That's why through the book of Job there are only tentative hints about life after death and there are moments when he feels sure there must be and that even after he's died yet he'll see God in the flesh. Somehow this little hope just pops through the surface now and again, but it isn't clear enough to solve the problem in a way that Christians would solve it. We'll come back to that later. But the book is in the Old Testament. It is either sheer speculation or it's real revelation. Now, it puts words into the mouth not only of men, the writer has put words into the mouths of men, into Job's mouth and Eliphaz and Bildad, Zophar's, but he has also dared to put words into the mouth of God. 
Now, either that is sheer speculation or the writer had revelation from heaven because the whole key to the book is that God has a wager with Satan. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to say that God is a gambler <laughs> and that God had a wager with Satan which was settled in Job's body. <laughs> now, to think up a plot like that would be the height of blasphemy unless it was true. And you know, of course, that the secret of the book is that Job had no idea about that wager and never did. He is never told what lay behind his suffering, but it was a wager between God and Satan. Now, either that is sheer guesswork, which would be ultimate blasphemy to a Jew and would deserve death sentence, because to say God says something when he didn't is false prophecy and that's punishable by death. So we're faced with a choice. I believe what we have here is a brilliant poet taking a true story and drawing out its meaning and application for other generations in brilliant poetry, but having revealed to him what actually lay behind the earthly scene because very often what happens on earth is the result of something that has already happened in heaven. And that's why we don't understand many things that happen down here because we haven't got the understanding of what happened up there first. In the book of Revelation, there is war on earth after there is war in heaven. And it's the war in heaven that results in the war on earth. And what goes on up there affects down here. And most of the time we don't know what's going on up there. And so we don't understand what's going on down here. But this book gives us the double picture. It's remarkable, really. It, it shows us a council meeting in heaven first and God holds council meetings and every now and again God calls together angels with responsibility and they have a consultation. Did you ever think about that? And Satan was an angel who had the job of reporting sins. Not an easy job and one in which you can easily become cynical. It's very hard being a Christian policeman. You see so much of the bad side of human nature. It's very hard not to become cynical. So cynical that you can't believe anybody's really good. And that's how Satan became what he became. But he also rebelled against God. But he was simply originally the accusing angel, God's counsel for the prosecution who travelled to and fro in the earth to report to God what human beings were like. And by the time Job is written, Satan has reached such a point of cynicism that he cannot believe anybody would love God for his own sake, that people are only loving God for what they can get out of him. That's the secret behind this book. Now, either that is sheer speculation or it is real revelation. Now, Job comes in the category of wisdom literature and in the Jewish scriptures, it comes in the section called the writings. It's not among the prophets. It's not in the law. This is in the writings. It's in that miscellaneous collection of things that came out of that prophetic period but are not directly prophecy. Nevertheless, there's revelation here. Now, most of us learn the hard way. There are two ways to learn wisdom. One is to get it from other people. The other is to find out for yourself. And alas, most of us 
go to the school of experience and the school colours are black and blue. Do you know what I mean? You see, when your parents tell you, now don't do that, it's bad for you, you can accept that wisdom from them and you're wise if you do. The whole book of Proverbs is passing wisdom from father to son, from a father who didn't listen to his father. I remember hearing a girl say to her mother in my presence, what did you do at my age that makes you so worried about me? <laughs> and I'm afraid often, like Solomon in the book of Proverbs, we say, now son, watch the women. See, Well, he hadn't done. But you see, wisdom, you can either learn it from others and believe that they know what they're talking about, or you have to learn the hard way yourself. So, well, Job learned this the hard way, I'm afraid. He went through an experience pretty terrible, very, very hard to go through, but he learned from it. Now, I've already said that not everything in wisdom literature is right. The Bible honestly reports how people arrived at wisdom, how they wrestled with wrong ideas till they got right ideas. We must be very careful what we quote from wisdom literature. For example, I'll give you a statement from God's Word and see how many of you agree with it. I found one man in a thousand that I could respect, but not one woman. Now, how many agree with that? How many say that's true? One, two, both the hands that went up were male. Did you notice that? Talk about prejudice, chauvinism, even here at High Lee. But you see, who's going to preach that as God's Word? But it's in God's Word. I was just reading from Ecclesiastes. That was true for the man who said it, a man called Solomon. And if you had 700 wives, that would be your, <laughs> that would be your attitude to women. Do you see? And it was true for him because of his choice of women. But you can't preach it as God's Word, even though it's in the Bible. Do you follow me? Wisdom literature is telling you how men wrestle with these problems and they honestly report what they said, but we must be careful not to pass it on as God's Word. It's in God's Word, but it isn't God's Word. Now that's a concept we've got to wrestle with. Secondly, about wisdom literature, wisdom is general it is never particular. Now, that means that even the words of wisdom are not always true in every situation. They are generally true, but not always. Take the book of Proverbs. How often have I heard a verse from Proverbs quoted as if it were a promise? But it's not a book of promises. It's a book of Proverbs. And proverbs are generally true, but not always true, whereas promises are always true. Do you follow me? And so often people quote, um, what's that one, uh, Lord with all your heart and he will direct your ways? Proverbs 3, 6. All right, that's right. Trust the Lord with all your heart and he will direct your paths. That is generally true, but it's not always true. It comes from the book of Proverbs, not the book of Promises. Do you follow me? And if you try and claim that to be true in every situation, you'll be disappointed. 
a proverb is generally true, wisdom is generally true, and we usually put um, proverbs in a snappy little form, usually poetic, so that it's memorable. More haste, less speed. He who hesitates is lost. Now those contradict each other, don't they? So which one do you use in a given situation? See, wisdom is the wisdom to know which is right for that situation. Do you see what I mean? You cannot mechanically just take a proverb and apply it every time. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Or too many cooks spoil the broth and there's safety in many counsellors. Which one is going to be the right one? Do you see what I mean? Wisdom is generally true. Honesty is the best policy. That's not always true. Sometimes if you're honest, you lose the business. See? But it's generally true. And here are a whole lot of them from the Bible. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. That's not always true, but it's generally true. Take what you will and pay for it. As you sow, so you reap. If you play with fire, you get burnt. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Ill-gotten gains never thrive. Make your bed, you must lie on it. Be sure your sins will find you out. All these are wisdom. They're not promises. They are generally true. And when we read wisdom literature, it's saying that life is basically moral. That on the whole, notice that phrase, on the whole, if you live a good life, you'll be happier and healthier. And if you live a bad life, you'll be miserable and sick. That is generally true. But I can think of exceptions. And Job is trying to deal with the exceptions. Do you see? It is generally true that if you live a bad life, you suffer for it. Isn't that true? Not always, but generally it is. On the whole, you can say that the people who live a good life are on the whole happier and healthier than those who live a bad life. And generally that is true, but only generally. Now the problem is when somebody comes along and says they're always true, and the proverb that lies behind this whole book of Job is, if you sin, you suffer. And if that is always true, then if you suffer, you must have sinned. Do you follow? And a rigid thinker who wants to make promises into some rigid idea, he will say to someone who's suffering, you must have sinned. And in this case, it turns out to be sheer bigotry. Well, now let's look at the structure of the book of Job. And then in the second talk, we'll go through it. It's again a sandwich, and this time it's prose, poetry, prose. Oh, we should have a word prose there so you can put it in. Prose, poetry, prose. That's the sandwich. And the prose parts give us the story and the background, the beginning and the end of what happened to poor old Job. And then in the middle you have First of all, a long conversation between Job and his three so-called friends. But with friends like this, who needs enemies? Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, and they have a long argument between them. After they've gone, another man appears on the scene, Elihu, and he has another argument. At least Job keeps quiet with him and we'll see why in a moment. So that's a kind of human argument about poor Job. 
And the human argument simply says, if you sin, you suffer, so if you suffer, you've sinned. Simple as that. But if you apply that to every situation, you get into trouble. Can I give you a modern example of this rigid thinking? If you're not healed, you haven't got faith. See? Now that is true in some cases. There are cases in the Bible where Jesus couldn't do mighty works because of their unbelief. And it is sometimes true that a person is not healed because they haven't got faith. But if you turn that proverb, as it were, into a promise and apply it rigidly to everybody, you will hurt people deeply. Do you follow me? Now that's what was happening in Job's situation, you see. They were kind of saying to Job, if you're not healed, you must lack faith. And, and it was a pressure that he couldn't cope with because he knew it wasn't true. But in their case, they're saying, if you suffer, you must have sinned. And if you'll only confess you sin, then you'll be out of this suffering. Now that was cruel because it wasn't true. Job had lived a good life in God's sight. He was righteous man. And this was cruel to tell him this because it made him dig around in his own conscience for something that wasn't there. Do you follow me? And I think in saying it like that, you recognize that it's possible to be Job's comforters today and to turn a general truth into a particular truth in a particular life. And we don't know the whole situation in another person's life. And if we start applying these rigid ideas, we're going to hurt people as they hurt Job. Then we have God having an argument with Job. And I told you, you don't win an argument with God. And poor Job came off worse in that argument, as we shall see. But he got through to the point where he didn't need the answer to his question. And that's really the point of peace. It's not finding the answer to your questions. It's getting to the point in your relationship to God where you don't need them. Let me give you a modern illustration. I'm often asked, what happens to babies who die? And my honest answer is, I don't know. But I know God well enough to know that whatever he does with a baby that dies will be absolutely right. Now, some people want to go beyond that and assure people their baby's in heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't say that, so I'm not prepared to say that. I want to bring people to the point where they trust God and know him well enough to know that whatever he does is right and that when they find out what he's done with their baby, they will agree that that is absolutely right. Do you see what I mean? The answer is not the answer to the question. The answer is a trust in a God who knows what he's doing and that's real faith. There are times when you say, why God? Why did you do this to us? But the peace comes when you say, we don't need to know God. We know that you know, and that's enough for us. We don't need to know. So it's a wonderful book. So we have this sandwich. All the arguments are in the middle in poetry and therefore artificially constructed. But then we've got the prose and the prologue, the prologue and the epilogue in prose which gives us the story. We've just time to begin to look at the plot. There are actually two plots skillfully woven with each other. There's a heavenly plot and there's an earthly plot. 
and because the two are intertwined, it's sometimes a bit difficult for us to get it. It begins with the heavenly plot, a debate up there, and it's a debate between God and one of his angels called Satan, and they have the first argument. They have, in fact, two rounds between them, God and Satan, in the prologue. Then there are all these rounds in the argument until the final round, but the two rounds between God and Satan are over this issue. Satan is a cynic by this time, and he doesn't believe that anybody can be good for nothing, if you know what I mean, <laughs> that everybody has an ulterior motive. And Satan says, people only love you, Lord, because you look after them. They're only yours because you've loaded the game in their favour, and so because it pays them to believe in you, they believe in you. But if you didn't look after them, they wouldn't love you, they wouldn't believe in you. And of course there are plenty of cynical people today who say much the same thing. Oh, well, you're only a Christian because it pays for what you get out of it. In other words, Satan is saying people cannot love God for his own sake, they only love him for their own sake, really. That's why they go to church, because they think it might bring them a bit more health and a bit more wealth or whatever, that basically people are selfish and therefore if God doesn't bless them, they wouldn't, they'd finish with God. Now, of course, that can be true of many people, but not of everyone. And so God defends himself. He said, did you meet Job when you went to and fro in the earth? Now, that tells us a very important thing. Satan cannot be in more than one place at once. Did you realise that? He's not God. I'm amazed how many people tell me they've been troubled by Satan today. There was one man came on the Tuesday evening prayer meeting and said, oh, Satan's had a go at me today. He said, I got up late, I hurried my breakfast, got indigestion, dashed to Guildford Station, saw the train pulling out of the station, missed an important appointment. Just every, oh, he said, Satan's had a go at me today. I said, he has had no such thing. I said, why did you get up late? He said, I forgot to set the alarm last night. <laughs> and he blamed Satan on it. I tell you, if Satan's been troubling you, you must be the most important person in the world because <laughs> he can't be in more than one place at once. I don't know where he is. Mind you, he has plenty of agents everywhere, but Satan himself goes to and fro. He came and tempted Jesus and then he departed from him for a season and he goes around the earth from place to place. He's a, lim he's a creature. You see, we tend to work with the Greek idea of natural and supernatural, and if you divide reality into natural and supernatural, which side do you put Satan on? Put him on the same side as God, supernatural. But if you divide reality in the same way that the Bible does between the creation or the creatures and the Creator, which side is he on now? He's on our side of the line, and he may be the most subtle creature that's ever been made, but he's a creature. He's not God, and we mustn't treat him as God, and he's not omnipotent, and he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent, he's none of those things. He's a creature, but he had a job to do as an angel, and that's what he said to God, and God said, you may be right, Satan, about many. I'm afraid that is true, but he said, you're not right about one man, and that's my servant Job. He loves me because he loves me and not because of any blessing I give him. And Satan said, I'll take a bet on with you. You take away his blessings 
and he'll curse you to your face. You just watch it. He's just like all the others. And that's when God said, Satan, you can do it, which tells us something about Satan, and it's this. Satan can't touch a human being without getting permission from God first. That should comfort you. That's why you pray, lead me not into temptation, because Satan can't tempt you unless God allows him to. That's why the worst form of discipline in the church is to deliver a church member into the hands of Satan. You can do that. It's the ultimate discipline. But Satan cannot touch a person who belongs to God unless God gives him permission, which is why God made a promise to all believers in the New Testament, you will never be tempted above what you can bear, because I control the tempter. And Satan is no problem to God. He's under God's thumb. He has to do what God tells him, and God has no problem with Satan at all. We may have, but he hasn't. Well, now that's the wager, and in the next talk we'll see just what happened and who won the bet. Was it God or Satan? Who was right about Job? You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.